Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Monday, September 18th, 2017. And today's topic is when patients refuse life-saving care. Yes, when patients refuse life-saving care. This is something that was often uh, discussed in uh, medical school, when I was in medical school. And this is supposedly an ethical dilemma. Yes, an ethical dilemma. What if you have a therapy that you know would save somebody's life, but the person wants to refuse that therapy? Do they have the right to refuse that therapy? Does your obligation to... uh, provide care, override their right to refuse care? Does your obligation to save lives override their uh, right to choose? And so this was presented as as, um, a very serious, weighty ethical issue. And people should not have the right to self-destruction, kind of like suicide being illegal, you know. Um, so this has reared its ugly head again in 2017 and they've actually seen fit to write a letter uh, again this is in your doctor's inbox about when patients refuse life-saving care 
This is presented, of course, as something on the part of the patient, irresponsible, because, of course, the patient could choose to save his life, but chooses not to. What? How can you allow him to make that choice? And in medical school, we were taught that the citizen, the individual, does not have the ultimate um, responsibility and the ultimate value for his life, that the government has an overriding interest in the life of an individual, an interest that overrides or is superior to the interest that the individual has in their own life. So because the government wants to have a strong country and then has the right to extend the life of any individual beyond what that individual may desire. Interesting. So I guess uh, we can say the same with wars. The government has the right to shorten the person's life by sending them to war uh, because that would serve the interests of, of the state. You see where that's going, right? So then, as doctors, we are trained that your life does not belong to you. It belongs to the government and, by implication, by transference, to the doctor. So if the doctor does something to improve your life, or let's say extend it, then, of course, the doctor owns your life. Your life then becomes a reflection of the doctor. The doctor then has the right to say, hey, you're not going to mess up my good work, darn it. You've got to do this or you've got to do that. This becomes a very hostile, almost adversarial relationship. All right. So with that background, with that background, we're going to take a look at what they've sent to your doctor, your doctor's inbox. Of course, the plot thickens. It gets even deeper from there. So this is Medscape. Medscape is the internationally um, recognized authority on what's good and what's not in medicine. And so they, they bring in all this information from the four corners of the world, of course, from a Western medical perspective only. All right. And so the topic is when patients refuse life-saving care. It is mentioned that it's a commentary. But again, this is an insight for you to help you understand what's going on in your doctor's brain when you say, Doc, I have a headache. He is literally running it through this filter that we are about to review. Okay, so the Medscape contributor, who's a doctor, recently encountered a vexing problem in his practice as a neurologist. Many patients are refusing medical treatment at great cost to their own health and to the healthcare system. You have to scratch your head. How could it be a great cost to healthcare system if the person's refusing care, right? I mean, care not given is money saved. So let's see what, what's going on there. One such encounter involved cultural sensitivity around a particular therapy that further clouded the ethics of how to proceed with management. So in other words, a patient had cultural values that did not allow him to accept this medical intervention. All right, so the doctor... Um, and a bioethicist professor at uh, SUNY Upstate, that's Syracuse, New York, where I'm from, recently had an email discussion about such ethical quandaries and about how to handle it in clinical practice. And this, I want to tell you, is a typical, 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 I'll repeat that, typical case. Okay. Uh, so, a very difficult management problem. Here is the case in which details have been changed to protect patient privacy. Okay, 30-year-old man from Cameroon 
had frequent admissions to the hospital owing to complications of AIDS. Stop right there. So we know for a fact that AIDS is an imaginary condition. In other words, a person might be sick, but it has nothing to do with a virus called human immunodeficiency virus because the virus has never been isolated in an infected person. Okay. Second, the complications of AIDS and symptoms of AIDS are conspicuously similar, if not identical, to the side effects of the medications used for therapy. So with that background, so we now have an imaginary illness. Okay, person has been admitted to the hospital several times for it. Okay, he has pulmonary and gastrointestinal tuberculosis. Again, we can cure this by getting the dairy out of his diet and stopping his AIDS medicine. Cytomegalovirus, retinitis. We can get rid of this by filtering his water so the cytomegalovirus can't get into his water. And central nervous system toxoplasmosis. Well, nothing little turpentine won't take care of. Okay, so we've got all these conditions cumulatively with some pretty simple solutions. And of course, this person is debilitated and requires the care of his family for his needs of daily living. All right, so so far, no medical expense except these visits to the hospital. A patient takes the appropriate medications for these complications of AIDS. Okay, now here is our problem. These medications, the complications of these medications is the problem. These medications actually further deteriorate the immune system. However, he is unwilling to take antiretroviral therapy because it would reveal to his family that he has AIDS, which carries a strong stigma in his country. Okay, so he's taking medications when these infections show up. So I can tell you, as a matter of fact, tuberculosis is a chronic condition. When I say chronic condition, I mean they treat it for several months and months and months at a time. The treatment is extremely toxic and tends to destroy the liver. If you were a healthy person taking TB medications, you would probably have symptoms of immune deficiency and require frequent admissions to the hospital. Okay. The patient says he would rather die than confess to having the disease. And it appears that he will die from complications of AIDS if he does not begin antiretroviral therapy soon. Stop right there. Many people who do start antiretroviral therapy die from complications of AIDS. So this therapy, while one might call it life-saving, is not going to keep him from dying of his complications. And frequent hospital admissions and an enormous hospital bill, which he cannot pay. So frequent hospital admissions Again, why are these frequent hospital missions? Could it be from the drugs that he's taking for the tuberculosis that are compromising his immune system? Hmm. And as the enormous hospital bill, uh, did he order any of those tests in the hospital? Well, I don't think so. So to start, here are a few questions that come to mind in considering this case. Okay, so first of all, we've got a false premise here. First false premise is that he has the disease at all. Second false premise is the disease is deadly. Third false premise is that available therapy will improve his condition. Okay. So we have these three false premises that lead to a contrived, fabricated ethical dilemma. All right. One, is the hospital ethically required to treat the complication of AIDS? 
in this patient when he refuses to treat the underlying problem, which would be AIDS, which would ameliorate or eliminate the complications. Okay. Again, so which would ameliorate or eliminate the complications. We know it will not eliminate the complications. Let's just dispense with that. So is the hospital ethically required to treat the complications of AIDS? The answer would be, in my mind, there's not an ethical requirement for any hospital therapy since we know it's deadly and ineffective. How can there be an ethical, ethical obligation to harm somebody? All right. Must society bear the cost burden of this patient's care? Answer, absolutely not. Or really, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a moot question because when he goes to the hospital and a bill is run up, that bill is the hospital's bill. It doesn't necessarily, it's not society's bill. And again, this is what happens in, when considering medical care, medical decisions. And so here we are, here I was, and every doctor's in this position, as a medical student. You're looking at a patient, you're trying to sort out what to do, and immediately they bring in this, this vague, amorphous, anonymous entity called society. Well, what does society want? Well, what's the impact on society? Well, well, can't we just talk about the impact on this patient first and sort that out, and then we can get around to society? And so what happens then is they get thrown off course. So whether it's a person being HIV positive refusing therapy, whether it's a pregnant person wanting to have their baby at home, whether it's someone wanting to vaccinate or not wanting to vaccinate, you have to bring in this third party called society and say, oh, because of this third party, it gives us the right to make a decision on behalf of the patient or the individual that the individual does not agree with. So, you know, don't, don't be confused by the smokescreen. This is all about how can we, the royal we, as in the kings and queens and rulers, make decisions about people's lives that those people themselves disagree with. How do we usurp that authority? Answer? Bring in the shill, bring in the straw man called society. It's like, hey, hey, let's point. Society, society needs this. It's this is for society. And so this is what's going on with this so-called HIV-positive person in his care. And as far as the underlying cause of his symptoms, it's pretty straightforward. The underlying cause of his symptoms are, one, the medications he's taking, two, uh, the chemical exposure he has, and three, uh, poor diet. That's pretty much the size of it. And as to who's ignoring the underlying cause of this condition, it's not the patient any more than the hospital. The hospital is not addressing his diet or his exposure to poisons. Okay, so must society bear the cost of the patient's care? The answer is no. The hospital can just, uh, you know, handle the loss if that's what they want to do. To what extent is patient autonomy supreme? And this is the crux of the matter. This whole um, argument and discussion is designed to totally deprive the patient of any authority over his body and his health. And so they want to get everyone excited about this whole discussion. Like, oh, this person should be taking his HIV drugs. And once he takes his HIV drugs, then 
He can ask society to step in. How about you not ask society to step in at all? How about they not give them the HIV drugs? Yeah, how about that? Don't give them HIV drugs and don't give them therapy for the complications. How about that? He would probably be a lot better off. Okay. What is the foundation of the concept of patient autonomy? Again, all this is about is patient autonomy. And this is one big discussion to deprive the patient of his autonomy. Remember, we're dealing with, with an imaginary disease here, AIDS. There's no evidence that AIDS exists. If you have conscious postulates, which um, is very basically the organism is isolated, nope, organism they're isolated. Two, uh, a person is infected. Once the organism is isolated, it, it reproduces. Nope, doesn't satisfy that one. Once it's isolated and reproduces, it's then reintroduced into a healthy individual, and that individual then gets the disease. Nope. So AIDS has failed to satisfy any of the scientific postulates necessary to prove or indicate that a particular organism, A, exists, or B, causes disease. Okay, so we're dealing with an imaginary disease. So to ask, should a hospital treat an imaginary disease, that's pretty straightforward. The answer is no. And must society bear the cost and burden of a patient receiving care for an imaginary disease? Of course not. And to what extent is patient autonomy supreme? Totally supreme. An imaginary disease? If the person has an imaginary disease, what authority could anyone exert to compel therapy for a disease that doesn't exist? Right. And what is the foundation for the concept of patient autonomy? You would say even, even simple common law would say that a person has the right to make decisions about their body. And again, in any case, if I, as an individual want you to do something on my behalf, whether it's administer care for me, whether it's, um, you know, give me a ride down the mountain, whatever, it's between you and me for me to try and somehow convince you that maybe you should assist me. Maybe you'll assist me for free. Maybe you want money. Maybe I could pay you in bananas or oranges or something else I have a lot of. So, it's not really for a third party to say what this transaction would be. So let's see what they say. And so the um, ethicist says, well, it's a challenging case and questions, and the core principles of medical ethics, accordingly, I'm addressing them as a single multi-layered question. So let's distinguish legal from ethical responsibilities in this case. And so that's an interesting concept. The hospital's legal counsel would be in a position to advise the patient's care team on the legal issues of this case. One, the patient's ability to give truly informed consent under the rather dire circumstances you described. So the first thing you do is going to challenge the patient's ability to give informed consent. So they're going to challenge this patient's competency. Okay, number two. The physician's ethical responsibility to uphold the core principle of benefit in relationship to three core principles of medical ethics. In addressing the ethical responsibilities of the hospital, I'm using that term as a proxy for the patient's physicians and healthcare team, which is not true, by the way, because the hospital is an administrative entity separate from the physician and separate from the healthcare team, by the way. And so what he's doing is he's pretending, and this is a very false 
pretense and kind of negates the whole discussion. He's pretending the administrative staff of the hospital is the same as the physician and the same as the healthcare team. And that's not the case at all. And I've been in situations where all three have disagreed over the course of therapy. And of course, the patient was yet a fourth uh, dissenting view. So as regards to the first issue, I'm especially interested to know whether the central nervous system toxoplasmosis has affected the patient's ability to make rational decisions. But wait, even if we declare the patient incompetent, who then does the decision-making fall to? Does it fall to the doctor or the hospital? Of course not. It falls to his next of kin. It would fall to the next person, human, in line. To allow the doctor or the hospital or the healthcare team to make a decision as a default because the patient's incompetent is a conflict of interest, right? Because the more they do, the more they get paid. So they're going to make a decision? I mean, ethically, that is a moral hazard. That means you're putting the doctor or the healthcare team or the hospital in a position where they are at a very high hazard of making an immoral decision or committing an immoral act. So at no point does it make sense in this situation to allow the doctor or the hospital or the healthcare team to be the ultimate decision maker. Because in the event that the patient is incompetent, the next person in line that might have the patient's interest at heart would be a next of kin or a friend, just by the way. And so, um, so there's some evidence, for example, that behavioral disorders can be related to an infection of this, case, of this uh, type. And so I would, he said, he would, the ethicist says, I would ask, has the patient had a psychiatric evaluation to determine medical competency and ability to give informed consent? Again, another conflict of interest. But who is the psychiatrist and a member of the medical team? And so what's his decision going to lean towards? It's going to lean towards a decision that has a bias towards the medical team. And the next is, is taking this therapy for AIDS, would it necessarily reveal his diagnosis to his family? Or is the patient's fear exaggerated? Even if the family did learn of the patient's AIDS, does the patient merely assume the family would not be understanding or empathetic, or is there a rational basis for the belief? The fact that AIDS carries a strong stigma in this country does not necessarily mean the patient's family would shun him or refuse to care for him, although, of course, this might occur. And so the psychiatrist, the ethicist is saying these issues need to be explored and assessed. How realistic is the patient's fear of stigma within the family context? But wait, how realistic is the existence of even AIDS? And so we've got two delusional things going on here. Maybe the patient's delusional about the impact of the diagnosis, but maybe the medical society or medical community is delusional about the existence of AIDS. <laughs> so, uh, so even more pressing, they have to explore the degree to which the patient understands the consequences of his actions and non-actions. And again, this is not the degree to which the patient understands of the degree to which the patient accepts the interpretation of the medical establishment. Does he understand that he will almost certainly die in the near future from the complications of AIDS if he doesn't begin this therapy soon? 
Or did he merely say in the abstract that he would rather die than confess to having the disease? And so again, this is all a moot point because we're talking about an imaginary disease. And so the first thing is to judge him mentally incompetent. And so the doctor says, well, I don't think he's incompetent because he keeps his appointments and he seems to be in control of his faculties. And then he says, okay, well, then we can argue that the hospital is ethically required to relieve the patient of suffering and reduce his incapacity insofar as the patient permits appropriate care, assuming the hospital has the financial means to do so. That is, the hospital has to provide the anti-complication treatment without bankrupting itself and therefore compromising care for other patients. Now again, so now we have to say, okay, we can only give you care if it's not going to compromise the care of other people. And so, it, again, at no point do they just say, let's take a look at this particular patient and his particular problem. And this opens the door to considering the community or global impact of your treatment no matter how trivial the condition. And that's where we get, oh, you have to get vaccinated so someone else will be safe. Well, why can't they get vaccinated so they'll be safe? I mean, the vaccines work. Well, you know, you've got to eat this way because it's healthy and uh, someone else is eating that way. Well, no, it's my body. I decide what I will and won't eat. And so if you're going to say we can't allow you to make decisions about your health care, because it might affect someone else's health, then what you're de facto saying is a person you've never met can impact your health. This can be greatly simplified, which is you get all the health care you can pay for. And since the disease is imaginary and the therapy is not effective, it makes perfect sense to limit a person's consumption of health care to just what they can afford or want to afford for that matter. And so now they're asking, is health care a basic right? And the answer is, it better not be. Uh, so in this particular case, is the care really life-saving? The answer is no. Would the patient live without it? The answer is yes. Is there a simpler option? Of course. You can just clean up the person's diet, remove poisons and toxins from the system, and he'll uh, recover very nicely and increase the nutritional value of his food. And so in this particular case, and this is usually the case with life-saving care, is it's not life-saving. In fact, it's my policy. Whenever a doctor tells me that I'm going to die if I don't fill in the blank, I make sure I don't do that thing, whatever it might be. Because the ability of uh, medicine to predict whether or not you're going to die in the next 10 minutes to two hours. And even their ability, once having made that prediction, let's just say it's accurate, to provide care that's going to materially affect the outcome is also very small. So um, this is totally a um, non-issue that is twisted and uh, propagandized to be a case for denying patients the right to have input into their care. The simplest way to have input into the care is to say, you only get the care you can pay for. And then people can decide how much they want to pay. And again, the thing to understand is, especially in this case, and this really highlights it, 
is you've got a disease that's imaginary and you've got therapy that's not effective. And so does the patient have a right to refuse ineffective therapy? Of course. Of course he does. So uh, I'd like to mention that you're listening to Blake Radio Station, Rainbow Soul Channel. This is Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniels. We have time for about one question. Three minutes left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, we have some comments uh, I'd like to read. Once again, that's why the most dangerous thing you can do is get tested. It is the ideology of, well, I'm going to get health insurance as backup just in case. That kind of thinking will get you killed, and absolutely. And we can't, can't forget, health care um, kills at least 880,000 Americans every year. That's a lot of killing. That's a lot, a lot of killing. And if you figure it out, that's about 16 to 17,000 Americans every week, every week, die from their medical care. And so you really can't make a case um, for uh, compelling medical therapy at all. So I'd also like to remind people that Vitality Capitals will be back in stock in approximately two weeks. We're having our two-for-one sale, and I'll be sending you a link for that um, pretty soon. So it's our out-of-stock sale. When you buy now, you will get two bottles for the price of one. All right. Awesome. And I will see you next week. And let's see. I'm getting more organized. So we even have a topic for next week. Let's take a look and see what it is. Ooh. Infection risks in medical equipment. When a simple test can kill you. Yep, they got more ways to do you in than I don't know what. Okay, that is it. And remember, think happens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.